0: Coming up on Garden Talk.
1: And their waste is then broken down and mineralized into a plant food that is then hyper bioavailable to the plants. So we can run much lower parts per million in terms of individual nutrient ranges uh, and get the same kind of growth results because it's hyper available in the ranges that the plants need. The more fungi and mycorrhiza fungi you have increases lignin production in the plant. So the woodier parts of the plant also improves terpene expression of terpene variety as well four by four with larger plants, I would say at least a 75 or 90 gallon aquarium. You could get by with as low as a 55 aquarium as long as it was super heavily stocked. The more we learn about the soil food web and you know the different food webs of our planet, the more we're improving our food safety and improving plant production at the same time.
0: What's up everybody? For you that don't know me, my name is Chris, aka Mr. Grow It and you're tuned into the Garden Talk Podcast, this episode number 64. In this episode, I have Steve, also known as Potenponics. He is an expert in aquaponics, and that's what we're going to get into today. He's going to talk to us all about the basics of aquaponics. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Thanks to AC Infinity for sponsoring this podcast. They sent me over their grow tent, which has a canvas density of 2000D, making them the thickest grow tent on the market today. It has an aluminum plate that mounts your controller to the grow tent with a lightproof pass-through for cable routing. The frame has 50% thicker steel poles and carries two times more weight than the standard grow tents. Coupon code Mr. Growit will get you a discount on their products, and I'll leave a link to their website down in the description section below. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk Podcast. Today I am joined with Steve from Potent Ponics. How are you doing today?
1: Hey, how's it going, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. We're gonna learn all about aquaponics today. So uh, you have an extensive knowledge when it comes to aquaponics. I myself don't have any experience with it, so I think this is gonna be a pretty interesting talk here because I'm gonna be able to pick your brain as somebody with very little knowledge of it. So <laughs> hope you're prepared for this. I think this is gonna help folks not only do an aquaponics, but there is a section that we're gonna really get deep into pH. And so for those folks that aren't growing on aquaponics, maybe you're in soil or cocoa or even a hydroponic system, if this aquaponics talk doesn't really appeal to you much, you might just want to skip over to the pH section, at least listen to the pH section, because you'll definitely be able to have some takeaways on that avenue. But first, before we get too deep into things, let's do an introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening?
1: Sure. So uh, my name is uh, Stephen Reisner. Um, I'm the uh, owner of Potentponics, which is an consul- aquaponics consulting company. We help uh, with everything from lettuce to medicinal plants to trees to everything in between. And um, uh, yeah, I've been working in the industry for a long time. So I originally got started farming and gardening uh, with my grandparents at a two-acre farm. Uh, and we used to, you know, they grew up pre-depression era, so we used to make our own pesticides from uh, fermented um, tomato leaves. And uh, make our own cloning gel from willow shoots and all of our own, you know, basically make all of our own stuff, which was super cool. Uh, and then later on, moved into the more commercial side of things, uh, uh, getting into uh, certain medicinal plants and then into um, uh, vegetable and, and other production as well. And, um, and then later on, uh, worked in, uh, out in Colorado and some of the medicinal plant industries. Uh, And then um, switched over to working uh, in my own company, and uh, I've now worked around the world in Africa and South America and um, uh, across the Caribbean, across the United States, Canada, uh, all over uh, helping build different types of aquaponics facilities or um, helping people, especially with specialty crops. We did a lot of work with fruit trees and some other heavy feeding crops to try and dial that in, and uh, um, that's been, uh, I guess, a lot of my work... uh, I guess is a short version of it. I uh, originally started working in the pet trade, and then there's a lot of overlap with the pet trade and, and aqu- in certain types of plants that you grow <laughs> that we all like to enjoy for recreational purposes. Uh, and then um, um, eventually from there got into uh, aquaponics. We used to call them river tanks before there was the word aquaponics. Uh, and then um, uh started working out in Colorado, and then the floods happened out there, and then ended up getting a job at the aquaponics source. Um, in their research laboratory and all that stuff so that was a, a really great um, a time uh, managing that and doing all the different research work there in their lab. And then uh, from there uh, they switched owners and we had to, um, uh, they were interested in having some of the different sectors of the company that I was heading up research wise uh, and uh, from there I started my own company and I've been doing that for gosh I guess seven years now which is kind of hard, hard to believe for me to say.
0: That's incredible. So lots of experience.
1: So your overall style of gardening, I mean,
0: you you talked about aquaponics. Are you, are only indoors or do you also do outdoor growing? Um, Have you done soil, cocoa, any like DWC? Uh, Are you organic or synthetic?
1: Sure. So I've grown pretty much every way you can think of. I've grown aeroponics, DWC, media bed, wicking bed, um, uh, sips, whatever you want to call it these days. Um, uh, rafts, beds, vertical beds. Um, my, I, my personal favorite is dual root zones. So I'm a big fan of splitting up the pots and having the top half of the pot with a layer of soil separated with a layer of burlap or other root permeable media uh, to keep the soil above it. And then below that, a, me- um, a media, to, so like a, a clay leca or a hydroton or a lava rock uh, and this allows you to flood and drain the bottom portion of the pot. You know, the bottom 40% or so, 45% or so of the pot. Um, and then 50% of the pot put a uh, layer of burlap and then the top half be soil. And this allows you to top feed the soil. You can amend that. You can make a super soil mix uh, and have a nice living soil that has, you know, companion plants and um, the mycorrhizae and other microbes that come along with that and, and diversifying the microbial Uh, species in the upper portion of the root zone and then all the aquatic fauna and the bottom portion of the root zone which is also a a huge factor in um, the health of uh, a a typical um, uh, uh, plant you know the the biggest way to improve the plant's biodiversity of its roots or I'm sorry the biggest way to improve the plant's um, immune system is to increase its biodiversity in the root system so
0: so lots of experience in several different areas when it comes to gardening so that's pretty cool so let's dive deeper into aquaponics. So, you know, just starting for beginners, tell us what exactly is aquaponics?
1: Sure. So aquaponics is growing basically with uh, organic hydroponics, I guess, is the simple form of it. But think, think of it, but more like aquatic soil uh, is how I prefer to describe it. So um, you have uh, the, the fish, which are in, living in the system. So Imagine a hydroponic system that has fish living in the reservoir and their waste is then broken down and mineralized. Into a plant food uh, that is then um, uh, hyper bioavailable to the plants, so we can run much lower parts per million in terms of individual nutrient ranges, uh, and get the same kind of growth results because it's hyper available in the ranges that the plants need, and that makes a huge difference in um, how how well that works for the plants. Uh, and then uh, we have a, a huge microbial biodiversity in that. So basically, the the fish poops we Take that poop, we mineralize it the same way that you would composting, I guess, in soil. Uh, would be a good equivalent. And then converting it into liquid um, uh, aquatic soil, which is the hyper-mineralized water that's recirculating all the time for the plants.
0: Okay. So basically, kind of taking a step back, you've got sort of like a fish tank. But are the roots, is it similar to like DWC where the roots are actually in the same tank as the fish? Or do you have a separate
1: tank for it? Sure. So in general, we usually keep the fish away from the plants. There's a lot of fish that will actually eat the roots of the plants. Koi in particular love, and tilapia both will feed on the roots of the plants. Um, so unless you have a particular reason for that, um, it is something that you want to um, uh, avoid. Um, so generally we have a separate fish tank that flows into a central sump that is then going to both the grow bed and the fish tank uh, plumbing-wise. Okay. Let's get
0: deeper into
1: like the actual equipment that's required for this.
0: Um you can do this on a home grow level as well as a commercial skill, right? So I think most of my audience is home growers. so I, I would like to narrow it down to just talking about home grow. However, you know, if you feel like there is some information there that is applicable and it you know overlaps with the commercial side of things when it comes to aquaponics, feel free to to talk about that as well. But if you are a home grower and you're ready to start aquaponics, what equipment is required? in order to get going?
1: Sure. So um, if you already have an aquarium at home, if you have an aquarium with a wet dry, all you really need to do is get a second overflow box from your, uh, um, uh, for your aquarium and then hang that onto the side of your over, um, flood and drain bed. Uh, and then you can have a flow through that way as a simple way to do it, or you can use a bell siphon as your return, or a loop siphon as another simple way and in, in low-cost way uh, to, to flood and drain a grow bed. And uh, that doesn't fail. You know, you don't need a timer or anything that's going to fail on you. Um, And uh, those can be great. You know, super low uh, cost ways. Especially loop siphons cost. You know, the cost of a piece of tubing that's, you know, three feet long. Like it is. It's not expensive at all to do. Uh, And then run that back to a central wet dry sump, like you typically use for an aquarium. uh, And then just pump from there uh, uh, to wherever. Or you know, get a tough tote. Say if you have a, you don't have any of that. You can go to your local aquarium store. Uh, you can go get an overflow box for your aquarium. Uh, you can get a tough tote to use as your sump at Home Depot for like 15 bucks. Uh, and then you could go over and get a plump fun drain kit from your local hydro store for like another you know 25, 30 bucks. Uh, hook it all up to a central pump with a T so that part of it goes to the fish tank, part of it goes to the grow bed. Uh, uh, you know make sure you have valves to adjust the flow rate so you can get it all set right. Uh, and dialed in and then um, you know away you go it, it's not anything overly complicated you can easily plumb them into an existing grow tent in an aquarium you have at your house already uh, it's nothing you know particularly complicated at all i would suggest going with loop siphons or bell siphons over uh, timer based systems timer based systems if you're familiar with them that's fine but the 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 timers always fail before the pumps fail so you know it can kill your plants it's not something you want to do
0: okay so i'm imagining the fish tank Right. And I'm imagining another box really where you're uh, or another container where the actual plant is located. Right. And you said it's similar to a sense where I mean, are you using like net pots and hydroton or anything up top? And then the roots are kind of suspended into the the lower section where the water is. Are there any like air stones down in that section or is it all just kind of connected through and the flow oxygenate oxygenate the the uh, water there
1: so you can do a dual root zone uh or i'm sorry a dwc and you can just put pots with a, you know a screen on the bottom of them let the roots go through that works really well um we've had uh, quite a few people doing that or even just a burlap on the bottom of a pot with some holes cut in the bottom to allow it to grow through works really well um uh the other way to do if you have an existing dwc otherwise just do a flood and drain in a regular flood and drain bed um or or you know uh, a drip bed, um, it's, just, it's just fine, you know. And you can use with or without media on the bottom part of the, the tray as long as you have it in your pots. So, generally, we use five gallon pots or three gallon pots, depending on plant size, um, with the bottom half hydrogen uh, or lava rock with burlap, and then the middle, and then uh, the top half soil.
0: Okay, so there are several different ways to kind of set up your equipment and be successful several different techniques on doing that
1: the thing that helps the most is having that extra soil layer even in the aquatic one um, type setups is because it increases the lignin production Uh, the more fungi and mycorrhizae fungi you have increases lignin production in the plant so the woodier parts of the plant also improves terpene expression of terpene variety as well
0: interesting now i gotta imagine that uh it would probably be best to have a fish tank first and like learn how to Feed fish and have them survive before you take before you take the next step and hook up your plants to that system. Is is that right? To, should you at least have basic knowledge on you know how to manage a fish tank? I know there's a lot of components to that in itself,
1: right? You're definitely better off um, having a, uh, at least a knowledge of how an aquarium cycles with the nitrogen cycling and, and going for, you know from ammonia to nitrite to nitrate with the colonization of the various bacteria. That help facilitate that, but your other minerals also work in that same way. So yeah, you want to have at least uh, uh, not have your first aquarium be your aquaponic system if you can help it. But if it is, then that's okay. You know, Um, I I wouldn't say that's something that you're you're gonna, you know, fail at if you've never worked on an aquarium before. But you're certainly gonna be better off, you know, having an aquarium and and understanding how that works um, before getting into. Hybridized systems, um, I think it certainly can make the learning curve a little easier. Um, but it's definitely nothing that you couldn't learn all at once, uh, you know, if you wanted to.
0: All right. And then how do you make this work in a grow tent? I know it's possible. We, like I mentioned, a lot of my viewers are just home growers. So making this work in a grow tent, would the actual aquarium kind of be? In the grow tent with it, or would you recommend it to be kind of outside the grow tent, and tubing coming into the grow tent with the plants, or how would that kind of all work within a grow tent?
1: Sure, yeah. So you would just put, sit your aquarium next to your grow tent, and run the tubing into there. Maybe put the sump uh, in the in the uh, in the grow tent, or you could even put the sump outside of the grow tent if you want to, but make sure you have your grow beds in the uh, in the grow tent, obviously uh, with the plumbing or either running in there and having the sump and grow bed in there or having the sump outside of it and having the plumbing go in and back out of the tent uh, depending on what's going to make m- more sense for your your spot but uh, the easiest way would just be to throw the tough toad in there set a short you know table in there or something to to keep you know your, your grow bed height set your grow beds on there like two concrete mixing trays or standard three by three grow bed and then um uh, put your plumbing off uh, off of there so either your standpipe for your flood and drain or for your um uh, loop siphon or your bell siphon, depending on what type of setup you decide to go with.
0: And so, say say they're in a four by four tent and they want to run four plants in there. What size aquarium tank should they get for that? Does it need to be like I know some systems out there, like auto watering systems, for example, are like gravity fed to where you have to have it above where the plants are are there any setups to where that has to be the case or can really it be kind of on the ground and then you've got a pump kind of flowing everything through
1: sure so yeah as long as both the grow bed and the fish tank are above the sump tank you can it doesn't really matter with the grow bed to fish tank levels you're not flowing directly from the grow, fish tank to the grow bed in most setups so um, you, you can set plummet that way and it will work but I wouldn't recommend it I think you're far better off Um, having them from a central T that comes from the central feed spot so that you have better, you know, kind of basically two loops uh, going around one for the fish tank and one for the bed, works much more efficiently.
0: And then what size tank for the fish?
1: Sure, so I would go for four by four with larger plants I would say at least a 75 or 90 gallon aquarium. Um, You could get by with as low as a 55 aquarium as long as it was super heavily stocked but, you know, you're really kind of pushing the lower limits of the you know, there, there's not enough fish weight to make enough biomass and fish poop to feed the plants at that point. You know what I mean? There's a kind of a minimum level of of uh, fish biomass that you need to have to feed the plants.
0: In the actual aquarium, you know, 75 gallon, you've got the fish in there. What else is in that tank?
1: Sure. So we, we often will put the fish and then usually an algae eater or two just to keep the thing clean. Uh, and then we'll have the, the drain in the drain cover. Uh, you know, whatever it is to, to keep them from getting sucked in. Uh, and then um, that's all we ever have in there. We'll have maybe some air stones uh, or a heater sometimes, depending on the size of the, the fish tank.
0: I was going to ask, I know we're getting kind of deep into like managing an aquarium, but it, it does wrap into it. Is there like a certain water temperature that needs to be there for the, the fish? We'll get deeper into like different species of fish here in, in a few minutes, but like water temp, um, does, is there any lighting that needs to happen over that aquarium tank? or what?
1: Sure so as far as water temperature generally 68 to 72 is where most of our facilities are running at um, for optimal fish growth and plant growth uh, and that seems to work really well across the board. You know if you're going for cooler weather crops you could always go with a little bit cooler water uh, or you know in the summertime if you're in an area where it's going to be really hard to, to cool that water you could always go with like a mizuna or some of the other um, uh, uh, warm weather crops that, that aren't going to care so much. Uh, okra would be another one that really doesn't care about heat gotcha
0: and then the water that goes into the tank Uh, we talked yesterday i was actually on um, steve's podcast yesterday and we kind of talked a little bit about this fresh water versus salt water i know it's a noob question right but uh, we want to cover it here Uh, so does fresh water go in there or are there some aquaponic setups that have salt
1: water in there sure so there's definitely ways that you can profit off of plants with salt water in aquaponics, but um, it doesn't work for um, uh, doing anything as far as um, terrestrial plants are concerned. Outside of brassicas, there aren't too many plants that will grow in a brackish or salt type setting. You know, mangrove trees, if you're doing a mangrove tree rehabilitation program, maybe that would work. But uh, outside of that, there isn't isn't uh, isn't much usage for salt water. Everything else is fresh water that we, we work with. Um, there are people that do like abalone and urchins and kelp and stuff like that in aquaponic systems, but you know that's that's more aquaculture to me. I think.
0: And then species of fish: are there certain fish that kind of work better than other fish? Are there some fish that you should avoid?
1: Sure. So I would avoid anything particularly delicate. You know, don't do discus or angelfish or you know um, freshwater stingrays. You know, they're they're or freshwater shrimps and stuff. They're just too sensitive. <laughs> And as far as fish, you can use koi, tilapia, yellow perch, bluegill, um, all the, any of the panfish are, are all good uh, stuff for that. Um, and then, uh, you know, you can do larger tropical fish, oscars and red-tailed catfish, things like that also work.
0: So for that 75-gallon tank example for the home grower who has his tank, how many fish should he put in that tank to begin, he or she, I should say?
1: Sure, so you could do, like, some larger freshwater South American cichlids. You could do, you know, a crap ton of guppies or mollies if you wanted to. Um, You could do uh, uh, a couple of Oscars or some Paku or, um, you know... uh, I think that'd be a, a good route. Again, you, you want to make sure you're still housing the fish comfortably, but you're trying to get as much as you can in there. And it's not so much an issue with a lot of people be like, oh, well, that's too many fish for the aquarium. Well, you have to remember that we have this huge amount of nitrogen export. Right? You know, In an aquarium that's just sitting on the wall, there's nothing to export that nitrogen, Right. But in the, um, with our aquaponic systems, you have all these plants that are just sucking in all the nitrogen and all the waste from the fish. So you don't have that kind of chemical imbalance that people kind of associate with smaller aquariums. So you can push the limits quite a bit more than you're typically told you can with an aquarium. Is there a way that you can
0: kind of tell? Are there signals to know, like, okay, I have too many fish in this tank?
1: Sure, so I would just say if there's a high amount of aggression in the plant and in the, in the fish... Um, Uh, And then if there's a a large amount of issues with um, high nitrates or nitrites, that's going to be another one that's uh, definitely going to cause issues. Um, And then, uh, um, you know, again, just general cleanliness of the tank and the system. You know, if it's... uh, really gunked up obviously you have too much um, but you're going to see that in your water chemistry you know if you're not again your nitrates are too high you're, you know you definitely have a problem if your ammonia is too high you know any, ammonia too high would be anything above 0. 0.25 nitrates would be anything above about 40 or 50 parts per million you know would be too high how do you measure that sure so you can get an, a, an aquarium test kit at any pet store uh, a lot of places will test your water for free if you just bring them some water samples tell us it's, it's your aquarium um, they'll, they'll happily test it for you for free um, so you know, yeah. And those test kits, you know, uh, API test kit you can get from aquarium pharmaceuticals. Uh, it's been around for, you know, since the eighties, uh, it's a really reliable test kit. And, um, as long as you don't get them too hot or too cold, they'll give you accurate readings. Uh, it's a tartation test. So you have to put so many drops of one and so many drops of the other in the vial, but it's super simple. Anyone can do it. If you have color. Now, this is an interesting thing. If you do have color blindness issues, um, be sure to, um, uh, you know, looking at a company called Hanna and Lamote, and both of those companies make digital monitors and digital meters that allow for digital output. So you don't have to read a color wheel or color comparison um, because, you know, a lot of people art do have color issues.
0: Okay. Before we get into pH, I want to dive deeper into that. I want to know about controlling the water temperature a little bit more. If the temperature is too cool, what do you do? If the temperature is
1: too warm, what do you do? Sure. So if the temperature is too cold, um, we usually fire up a heater. We usually use closed loop gas heaters or closed loop solar heaters. So we'll take solar water heaters and put them on a on a closed loop heat exchanger, and heat the water that way. Uh, and then we'll supplement that when the weather is bad with a closed loop, basically tankless water heater on that same heat exchanger with a different you know input loop on the glycol. Uh, and that's the how we manage on larger systems. On smaller systems, you would just use a regular you know aquarium heater or titanium heater depending on the size of your, your system.
0: And then what about cooling?
1: And then as far as a cooling, uh, that's a, a harder problem. Um, so usually when we have big facilities, we'll put coils in the ground. So we'll take big, big metal coils that you like use for gas lines, the PEX, the yellow PEX line We take the plastic off of that and bury it in big giant loops. And then um, we run glycol through that uh, underground. Or ideally, if they have a farm pond or other pond, we'll sink it to the deepest part of the pond. And we can actually get significantly better heat exchange. Um, It just depends on uh, what we have available to work with. Um, But generally, geothermal cooling is their first resort. And then if that doesn't work, you can go to chillers, but they're generally not financially viable. Um, We usually try to keep the room cooler. So we'll have either AC or... or, um, uh, again, geothermal uh, cooling with the tubing in the ground on bigger facilities uh, to cool them down, and then again on a smaller stuff, you can always get a, a, a chiller if you wanted to. But um, generally, you try to prevent it in other ways, preventing open sun on the water and the grow beds as much as possible with plant canopy or, or shading cloth or you know some of the other things that you can do um, to try and help prevent some of those issues. Um, you know, cooling is a much harder problem.
0: There's definitely some good advice there though on how to control the water temperature.
1: Now pH, what is the ideal
0: pH range for aquaponics?
1: Sure so the ideal pH range for aquaponics generally is around 6.6. Um, you know that's where you're going to get the most amount of mineral bioavailability uh, for your system. Uh, anything you know above about seven you're going to start to see a cutoff and a reduction and then anything below about 6.2. Uh, 6.0 you start to see another reduction and then there is another peak lower on at like 5.7 5. 5.8 5. but it's not not as good across the board for what we're doing and then with all the microbial species and everything else it, it's much better for us to maintain a 6.8 to 6.6 6, uh, range for most of the systems that we're operating right now
0: and then when you need to adjust the ph because it goes out of range what are you
1: typically using to adjust the ph Sure. So for uh, aquaponics, we use potassium silicate, and we alternate that with powdered calcium carbonate, and that works really well for raising the pH. Um, We can also use calcium chloride if we had to. Uh, If you're in uh, uh, hydroponics, you can um, in a pinch. Uh, You can also use... um, Um, you know a bunch of other things to raise pH but generally we like potassium silicate and calcium carbonate is the the main go-to every once in a while we use potassium bicarbonate we need to also raise the alkalinity or the dissolved carbonate hardness um, to stabilize the pH a little bit more Uh, we'll add that but uh, in general that's what we use for a pH up and then for pH down um, we'll use phosphoric acid for smaller adjustments um, and we, we also need to add some phosphorus to the system uh, and then for bigger adjustments, we just use muriatic acid, also called hydrochloric acid, which sounds a little crazy, but it, it's fine when you're diluting it out into thousands of gallons.
0: I should ask this before I asked how to adjust the pH. Is, is And you touched on this a little bit, I believe, is is what would cause the pH to go outside of that range? Is there something with that the fish is doing that would cause it to go too high or too low?
1: Sure. So um, there's a couple of different things. So if your tap water or your base water when you're adding and topping off the system is high in pH, that can raise pH over time by building up your mineral levels in the system or building up the alkalinity in the system. So that can be one source. Another source would be um, you have um, if your system is, goes anaerobic, so say you're feeding the fish too much and there's lots of fish waste getting past your filtration and into the beds and it's kind of clogging things up and starting to rot, that can also start to, to raise the alkalinity and raise the pH of the water um, and that can be another sign of, you know, why your water quality is going south. Uh, or uh, another thing, and this happens, I see this quite heavily in Colorado, I think is the place I've seen it most extreme, uh, is that you can have issues when the water department switches reservoirs. <clears throat> so the springtime or the fall, or when frost hits or whatever, they'll switch from one lake to another, or one reservoir to another, and you can have as much as a full pH point difference in 24 hours. From your tap water which can be a huge problem uh, if you're trying to work with uh, anything in, a, in aquaculture or uh, w- w- even terrestrial plants.
0: Even when you're in soil or cocoa having those large pH swings I mean that's destroying your micro life right that's something that people don't talk about very often is these these large pH swings and how much damage it's actually doing to the the microbial life so I'm glad you you mentioned that one. Going back to the pH up and then we'll go to pH down afterwards, but pH up, you said you use a potassium silicate or calcium carbonate. I watched your video on pH with Chad Westport, and you said it's you had it under wrong to use potassium hydroxide, potassium carbonate, and calcium hydroxide. Why would why are those categorized as wrong to use as pH up?
1: Sure, so um, you can use calcium, uh, potassium carbonate. I just think it's If you're going to use it, use potassium bicarbonate because it's better for aquaponics specifically. The dissolved carbonate hardness, if it gets too low, will actually uh, hinder microbial replication. And you'll get up to 50% slower breeding rates of your microbes that you're trying to harness to make your plants healthy. Um, So it's kind of a, you know, it's it's just a lesser option, I guess. But with the hydroxides, hydroxides are really easy to accidentally overdose and way overshoot. Um, They also can't be put on airplanes. So I don't like to use things that are RMD, uh, which is what the the military post office code was for it when I used to work for them, but a uh, long time ago in a different life. Um, but uh, anything that goes on a plane or can't go on a plane, I'm not going to put in my system. If I'm going to eat the vegetables or consume those plants in some form, it's just, to me, not a, not a good starter. But it also only adds one useful element when everything else adds two. The carbonates add... Um, alkalinity which helps your microbes and adds minerals Uh, and then you have the uh, potassium silicate which the potassium is helping and the silica is helping so why would you add a compound that's only adding one compound that helps the plants when you can add a compound that adds two you know it just doesn't make any sense to me you're kind of spending money to do the same thing for half as good of a product
0: Understood. And would you say the same thing for somebody growing in soil or cocoa? Or is that specifically for aquaponics, what you just said there?
1: Uh, Well, cocoa, I would... uh, Personally, I hate cocoa. Uh, I think cocoa is finicky. Plants are just hard... It's harder to maintain in cocoa. It's a lot easier to get pests and bugs and stuff. And I don't know. I just... I always see, like, the worst farms I've visited consulting have almost always been cocoa. Um, So... I just I just don't I'm not a fan of cocoa um, I'm a big fan of living soil and a big fan of aquaponics either method I think is kind of the the top tier of the industry in terms of terpene levels and other important essential oil compounds in <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the plants that we're after you know and the flavor compounds and other things that we're all after for for high quality organic produce um, uh, I think that that's really the best way to um, approach it and and both of them again are why are they the highest levels of those compounds both of them are the highest level of microbial biodiversity in the root systems you know it makes total sense why they're both you know neck and neck in terms of production of of those types of compounds just aquaponics does it all twice as fast growth speed wise so you get quite a few more you know quite a bit more produce per year uh than uh than normal so ph down
0: referring to the one with chad westport the video I, i just talked about you have phosphoric acid, muriotic acid, which you just mentioned as a pH down, what you would use for it. You also have lactic acid bacteria, serum, organic listed under right. Now under wrong, this is gonna cause a little bit of controversy here because I know a lot of people use vinegar, citric acid, those are the two main ones that people use all the time for pH down, and then you also have nitric acid. So
1: why, would, why are those under wrong? Sure, so nitric acid um, is the easiest one, I guess, to get out of the way first. Um, in aquaponics, the fish provide all the nitrogen. I don't need to add more nitrogen, right? We have all the nitrogen we need. It's already accounted for. We're budging it in the fish output into the the nutrient solution and, and how much they're producing per day. So I, I that's accounted for, right? So I don't want to add nitrogen. So that's, that's that one. Vinegar, first off, is a horribly poor, weak acid. It also creates all kinds of secondary chemistry issues with polarity and... Just smells like I love eating vinegar and vinegar chips, but I, a room with plants in it that has vinegar and it just smells horrible to me. So um, uh, uh, I, I think that it's just for your money spent, you you could buy a much cheaper acid that's you know much more effective that you could dose a tenth as much to do the same amount. It just it's not cost effective economically. Citric acid. So citric acid is very weak as well. Um, and, and the same reason you also have a buildup of some of the compounds in it. If you're in a closed loop aquaponic system where we don't re- d- uh, dump our reservoirs, except maybe once every, maybe a couple percentage points per month, we're taking, you know, maybe 3%, 2% per month, just as a trickle off, uh, mainly to, to make sure we never get heavy metal issues over time, um, from a water source, unless we have a good filtration system, then we don't need to do that. Um, uh, but, uh uh we just don't want to take the risk with that but the biggest thing it comes down to is just cost you know if you're organic certified then yeah okay you're pigeonholed into doing that and I understand that and that's fine but i, I, I most crops as well you, if you're already doing aquaponics you can demand a very similar price point to organic certified without having to deal with all the rickmorol of of organic certification because it's quite expensive. A lot of people don't realize how expensive it is. Not to mention the labor cost. It takes a lot of labor time to do all the data entry to maintain your organic certification, and you can be inspected at any time. Which a lot of people listening to the show are not be appreciating. Uh, uh, someone randomly showing up to inspect their facility for one reason or another. So um you know all of those things are entailed along with you know whatever per, per, portion of the farm that you dedicate is organic certified production that's the only thing that you can do there you can't utilize that space for anything else so and the rules are overly restrictive and it just very few crops demand unless you're at a really large scale it's not generally worth it to go with organic so i know that sounds horrible for an organic regenerative person to say but you're far better off just growing organically having regenerative practices, getting some of the other cheaper certifications and getting the same price point as the organic guys, you're, you're gonna get, you know, pretty much the same price anyway. Why pull your hair out and deal with the government when you can not do any of that and get paid the same? I just don't see a point.
0: So for the pH down, lactic acid bacteria, serum, phosphoric acid, muriotic acid, thumbs up, not advised to use would be the vinegar, citric acid and nitric acid for aquaponics, would you say the same thing? for soil and you know, soilless mediums?
1: Yeah, if you're mixing a nutrient solution, all this stuff, I would say pretty much would go the same way. I mean, yeah, if you're in a pinch and you're out of everything else, yeah, you could use those, like whatever. Like, right? uh, Or if you're in soil and you need to add nitrogen or cocoa and you need to add nitrogen you know, because you're low on nitrogen, then yeah, use nitric acid, right? Because chemically, you're balancing it out for that, right? So it's just a matter of, of using it appropriately with, and thinking about how you're balancing out that total nutrient solution, um, that you're trying to build up there, um, that's really what it comes down to. And um, I, you know, I'm a big fan of again the uh, you mentioned too the lactobacillus acid. Lactobacillus acid will lower pH by point one to point two points pH uh, in a one to one thousand dosage. So you know, one gallon per thousand gallons lowers it that much. It's it's decently strong acid compared to most of the others.
0: A lot of people are really concerned about using pH up and pH down. Because they are growing in living soil, for example. I know we're, we're kind of getting off topic on the, the aquaponics thing, but I think this is kind of important for, for some people to hear. Okay. Is uh, They're afraid that they're using these and they're killing off their microbes in the medium. Using pH up and down, are, are those killing off microbes or,
1: or no? So all pH up and all pH down will kill microbes if you use too much of it. So the trick is to try and adjust 0.1 or 0.2 pH in a 24-hour period. So if you do it low and slow, and you do it over the course of a week or two, microbes don't care, the plants aren't going to care, your fish aren't going to care, everything's going to be fine. But if you swing it quickly, you're screwed. So what we normally do with pH up or pH down, I'll mix it up into like a a 5-gallon or 10-gallon bucket. And we'll sit it on the edge of the sump with a, uh, we drill out a hole in the bottom, and then we'll put a a, a airline, we'll super glue an airline nipple uh, that you can get for like 75 cents or 90 cents at the pet store um, that has a little valve on it. And then um, all you have to do once you have that glued into the bottom bucket is open it up so it's dripping or a small slow stream so that pH up is dosing over the course of four to six hours you know, and slowly dosing the water and mixing in. So you're not dumping a bunch of it and nuking everything right there. You know, it's kind of a slow adjustment. And that's really the the trick to it is, you know, and if you don't have that kind of setup, you can always build something that, you know, punch a little hole and have it, you know, you can time how, how long it takes to drain a container, right? Like this is really basic, simple stuff. You can scale it to any size system that you're doing. And it can be a really simple way to kind of time release it without having to have it, you know, I don't have to go, dose it. Even if you did, say I have, I need to dose this many gallons of pH down. You can mix that up and then just, you know, every 30 minutes, just throw a a cup in there or whatever, you know, if you want to do it by hand, but that's the trick is doing it slowly.
0: Last question on pH would be some people swear by the vinegar and the citric acid. You know, they're going to say that's way better to use than phosphoric acid or muriotic acid. And they say that microbes are safe. Just want to reiterate that you're saying that if you're using enough of it, vinegar and citric acid could certainly negatively impact the microbes.
1: Oh yeah. Vinegar is used all the time as a cleaner. Like (laughs) my grandma used to use it as a cleaner. Like she'd mix that and some lemon juice and throw it, you know, make the whole kitchen smell like a, you know, lemon vinegar. But, um, it, it you know it 'll kill microbes it, again it's the concentrations it, it you, any of these if you 're using them in a strong concentration of course they 're going to kill stuff um, but there's no difference between or, or you know vinegar pH down from vinegar and or citric acid in terms of its ability to kill microbes it's killing microbes because of the shift the, the rapid shift in pH not because of the co- chemical compound the chemical compound of any of these is not toxic you know you can uh, uh, muriatic acid is using candy. Uh, it's used. Uh, phosphoric acid is in soda, right? Like these, are, these aren't scary compounds, right? Like they're. I think oftentimes people think they hear acid or they hear like, you know, whatever mineral because that's in a mineral name, and it's like, well, yeah, but you use it in your food all the time. Like it's, <laughs> calcium carbonate's a bread leveler, right? Like, <laughs> it's nothing scary. Thanks for
0: the clarification there, because uh, pH is certainly one of those hot topics where I think there's a lot of misunderstanding.
1: On it. Well, I think the biggest misunderstanding in pH is pH. People use the word pH and alkalinity interchangeably, which is completely wrong. Like, I don't know how that got started. Um, but alkalinity is your DKH, your dissolved carbonate hardness, which is me- measured in two ways either DKH, which is dissolved carbonate hardness units, or in parts per million. So you can measure it either way. Um, usually you want 2 to 5 DKH, which is 36.7 or 36.8. I don't remember exactly, um, uh, parts per million to like 80 parts per million plus minus. So that, that's your, your target range um, to make sure that you're not overshooting your pH. Because if you go above those levels I just mentioned, you're going to way overshoot your pH just by default. You know Your alkalinity is your stability of your pH. So your higher your alkalinity, the less likely you are to have a pH shift or pH change. Um, whereas the the short the lower the alkalinity, you can have a um, really low alkalinity, and if you check your pH every day when you come home from work at 5 p.m., it'll be the same. But if you check it at 5 a.m., it could shift by two-thirds of a point uh, as the uh, photosynthetic bacteria wake up or go to sleep and, and the chemistry starts to change overnight. So, you know, it just depends on, you know, what water chemistry you have. But you can have pretty severe ones. So if you are seeing a bouncing of your pH over a 24-hour period, even without an alkalinity test, you can immediately tell your alkalinity is too low.
0: Sounds like that's a common mistake, especially for beginners that they make there is, is confusing the two or, or using them interchangeably. Like you mentioned, what are some other common mistakes that people make when trying to grow with aquaponics?
1: Sure. Uh, overfeeding. I think that's another one. Um, or, um, having like nowhere near enough fish, um, or too way too many fish. Um, those are another ones or, uh, People having like tons of gravel in an aquarium where they're trying to also get the poop to flow out to get to the plants. You know, it's you got to have a bare bottom aquarium or or close to it uh, uh, to have uh, any kind of aquaponic system. It works better. Not to say you can't, but it'll work a lot better if you do. Um, Trying to think what else. People using all kinds of weird cockamamie stuff for pest control. Like people spraying their plants with Windex or OxyClean or like. You name it if it remotely sounds like it might be organic or natural I've had people spray it on it and then call me and tell me they did it like just because it has a lemon scent doesn't mean that you should spray it on plants like I don't like there's just people get all these weird ideas on stuff I've had uh, I some stories that I can't mention on here without ruining your your ability to monetize this episode um, and, uh, and uh, yeah I Some pretty ridiculous stuff that I've been asked over the years. uh, But I think most of the weirder ones... We had, I think, by far the one... And I've had this... I had, like, three calls all within, like, a year of the same question. Is like, what is the acceptable level of radon and uranium in the water uh, that I can use for bore water in Australia? And it was, like, the same little area that all had, like, the same idea to get into aquaponics at the same time in the middle of nowhere, Australia... And they had high levels of uranium and, and and radon in the water, and I was like, "Do not use that water for anything living." Like, no, no, there is the answer is zero. Zero is the acceptable level. Like,
0: <laughs> oh man, that's crazy. That is crazy.
1: So, what advice do you have
0: for folks that are just starting with aquaponics?
1: Sure. So, I would just say, um, you know, read up a bunch on different YouTube channels and things like that. Um, make sure you understand how an aquarium works from a chemistry standpoint. Planted aquariums, especially, can be a really good way to kind of better understand the chemistry uh, in terms of chemical interactions uh, of, of uh, an aquaponic system. Because aquaponics doesn't have a lot of good, because it was approached so heavily from the hydroponic people um, and like universities that had hydroponic or aqua or or agriculture programs, they didn't really, in my opinion, approach it originally from the right way. Um, you know, they, they didn't approach it from the standpoint of, um, uh, again, living aquatic soil, you know, the, the, that the microbe diversity was as important as the mineral levels and, and, and trying to max. That's why I think that you have such a wonderful marriage with KNF and aquaponics because it hybridizes so freaking well and allows us to unlock, in some cases, 80% more minerals from our fish waste. When we start to add things like liquid IMO and labs to the system, we've also noticed that labs completely eliminates uh, uh, waterborne E. coli Uh, as well as um, uh, salmonella and a couple of other pathogens that we've done done some testing on. So I think that you're going to see, you know, in five or ten years from now, uh, lactobacillus dosing required for food safety protocols for any kind of food production in aquaponics, or even hydroponics potentially, because why would you not add something that accelerates your plant growth rate and eliminates pathogens? It's kind of a win-win, and it's low cost. I mean, you can do a facility of 10,000 square feet for like... Eight bucks a week or whatever—you know—it's not breaking the bank in any way. Like it's—it's it's cheap stuff.
0: That's really interesting. So yeah, it seems like it's a sustainable approach that's going to become more and more popular.
1: It was certainly surprising when we were running the trials with the labs. We had a non, just by happenstance, happened to have a non-pathogenic, non-human pathogenic non pathogenic E. coli strain in there. It's a soil E. coli. There's thousands of different ones that, that do different soil functions and stuff like that, but it happened to end up in the system. Um, we ended up doing a treatment of it and realized, hey, it eliminated the E. coli. Isn't that a weird side effect? So then we had another farm, a lettuce farm, uh, that was a commercial farm that had tested hot for E. coli in their water. We tried it, and then within 30 days eliminated it from there, and we've done two more farms since then that we've managed to have similar type water pathogen issues where the water department came in more happy with them with their water results. And within 30 days, we've been able to mitigate it using, um, you know, Korean natural farming practices, uh, lactobacillus, uh, in particular, uh, to eliminate those, those things. So again, uh, the more we learn about, um, you know, the, the soil food web and, you know, the, the different food webs of our planet, the more we're improving our food safety and improving plant production at the same time.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, definitely a big success story there. Cool. Well, I appreciate you. Let me ask you some beginner questions there. <laughs> I'm sure we could have gone over a lot more. I really wanted this to be just the basics of aquaponics. You know, more like an introduction to it. You're the first person on this podcast that I've ever has ever talked about aquaponics. So I think an introduction to begin. Maybe in the future we can do a part two with something more, a little bit more advanced knowledge. Um, for the folks that do have experience and maybe they can get a little bit more out of it but i definitely think looking back the ph in particular is not aren't only going to help people who are in aquaponics but it'll also help the folks growing in soil and soilless mediums as well so appreciate you sharing that with us today before we wrap things up tell us how can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future
1: sure so um I have my own podcast as well called the Growing With Fishes Podcast. We're on our sixth year this year. We are at uh, almost 300 episodes um, we're, we're coming up on. Um, uh, you can check that out. We've interviewed a ridiculous slew of people. Uh, we had Frenchie on twice, who since since uh, passed away recently. We had um, a ton of other activists that have, have are no longer with us. And then a, a whole bunch of uh, experts from around the world, everyone from you know, soil scientists, uh, genetics experts to uh, we had a whole 14 hours on um, plant protections and things like that after the, you know, Philo scandal. And, and we really try to cover every aspect of this industry. And, and there is a, maybe a slight leaning towards the commercial side of it is because that is what what I do and, and most of the panelists do just for a living. But um, we do cover, uh, you know, a lot of, of homegrown stuff and it is all geared towards living soil and aquaponics. Uh, if you're interested in aquaponics, the first 16 episodes are kind of more of a how-to beginner's guide to get started. After that, we really kind of assume that, hey, we gave you the base knowledge. Now we're going to start to get more complicated and build upon what we've been teaching you. Um, uh, and then we also have, a, uh, Marty and I, the co host of the podcast, have a whole online school, apmjclass.com. You can check that out. Um, we have nutrients if you need nutrients for your stuff, at uh, apmjnuts.com. Uh, And then um, you can find a podcast on uh, your favorite podcast app, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all the things. Um, And then as far as stuff coming up, um, we have the uh, Supernatural Conference coming up in July 29th, 30th, and 31st in Oklahoma City. Uh, I will be speaking there on um, IPMO, which is Advanced um, IMO Collection specifically for targeting pests and and infecting pests with natural predators. So I'm going to be teaching a, a little seminar on that. Uh, as well as some other cool advanced Korean natural farming methodologies, uh, along with Chris Trump, um, Patrick King, Wendy Kornberg, um, Susan Mainwright-Evans, and a whole bunch of other awesome organic experts. Uh, And then I have um, uh, Danielle from... Uh, Aquilitas coming on the show on the 28th. She's one of the leading researchers. If you're into learning more about how to hybridize aquaculture waste and inputs with soil production, uh, they utilize that and have done lots of testing. They've shown that um, it can increase THC, CBD, and other types of important compound expressions, essential oil for compound production uh, by as much as uh, 17%, uh, and some of the terpene expressions by as much as 40%. Uh, and total crop yield by as much as 53%. Uh, And this is by utilizing heavy living soil, you know, happy, good uh, living soil, and watering it with just base filtered water versus aquaculture water. So um, that really does make a a huge, huge difference in the chemistry. Uh, And then on the 12th of May, we have Tommy Chong coming on the show. So uh, looking forward to that as well. So
0: we had uh, Tommy Chong on the From the Stash podcast with me, Rob from CLTV, and Pigeons 420. And uh, he's got some stories there. He's a, he's a talker, so I think he's going to, uh, I think he'll definitely do well on your podcast. And uh, I was on your podcast not too long ago, so I'll definitely have a link to the episode I did on his channel, on his, in his podcast, down in the description section below if you're on YouTube. If not, if you're on one of the podcast platforms, just search for it on, on YouTube, and it'll come up. Just search Potent Ponics, and Mr. Grow It should pop up first. I'll definitely have a link to your channel, your YouTube channel as well, down in the YouTube description section below. And uh, yeah, head on over there, give him a follow, and that's just about it. If you enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up button. Also, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single week, I'm releasing a new Garden Talk podcast episode, and I would love for you to tune in to future episodes. Steve, once again, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. This was very insightful for not only me, but I think a majority of my audience as well. So thanks for coming down here and and dropping those knowledge bombs.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. It's been great.
0: All right. Until next time, take care, everyone. Peace.